Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2 and extending to verse 7. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness. And as your people today, to put on the armor of light that is ours in Christ Jesus who came so long ago to visit us in humility and with love to win for us salvation. And that in that salvation this day, through the power of your word, you might prepare us. Prepare us for the great day of Christ's return, when in glorious majesty he will come to judge both the quick and the dead. And that we, with him, may rise with immortal life through him who reigns with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, even the Lord Jesus Christ, both now and forever. Amen. In my Bible reading this week, I was once again struck by how often the Bible is a lot like our lives. We read one passage of great encouragement, passage filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with thanksgiving, and we turn the page and the next is full of sadness. It's full of lamentation. It's full of sorrow, difficulty, and darkness. Over the last couple of weeks together, we as a congregation have been celebrating and remembering the gift of thanksgiving. 
the importance of acknowledging what it is that God has done for us as his people and to offer to him the thanks that he is worthy of for the great things which we, he has accomplished. We look together at a beautiful psalm in the first of those worship services in, on November the 18th. In preparation for the celebration of Thanksgiving, we read a selection from Psalm 136. That beautiful psalm with the drumbeat of the refrain. You'll know it. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. And then you turn the page to Psalm 137 and you read these words. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You'd hardly believe that those two psalms are saddled up next to one another in the great book of hymns in the Old Testament, Psalm 136 and Psalm 137, it's the rapture of the joy of the Christian life alongside the rupture of living in the suffering of the fallen and broken world. The people of Israel knew it well. And there's not a one of us in this room who doesn't know it well. How often is thanksgiving and lamentation woven side by side? Over the course of our lives. In some ways that's especially true, isn't it? During this season, this quote-unquote happiest time of the year. When sometimes those warm, nostalgic feelings come to us when we're sitting late at night looking at the glow of the Christmas tree and we're sipping on some holiday coffee and those melodic refrains of Perry Como or Bing Crosby come wafting through the iPod and, and we hear those, those silent night lines that, that make us want to just kind of melt in that moment, a little bit like the marshmallow in the hot chocolate. And then almost as soon as those feelings come, they, they go. And more times than not, as we look over the course of our lives, we find it hard to choke out the lines. All is calm and all is bright. For it seems that darkness and difficulty is often more characteristic, hemming us in before and after. How can we know... The calm and the brightness in the midst of overwhelming darkness and pain. How can we have a spirit of thanksgiving and the joy of the Lord alongside the sorrow and the lamentation that's so characteristic of the fallen world? It's a question that Israel must have been asking in the time of Isaiah. At this point in Israel's history, the Davidic throne 
has been divided into what is known as the northern and the southern kingdom. And all around them, at the point of Isaiah's writing, there is a darkness, a great darkness. To the north, in the kingdom of Israel, they have foolishly aligned with King Rezin, the wicked king of Syria, in order to defend against the ever-encroaching and significant army of the Assyrians, who were the superpower of the day. To the south, the country of Judah, King Ahaz has been left alone and vulnerable with all of his hopes because there he's looking for political answers instead of looking for the spiritual answers that God has given to him in the Word. And Isaiah, in the course of his prophecy, is predicting that this great darkness that's surrounding the people of Israel is a darkness that will ultimately descend upon them with destruction. The destruction first of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., but later in the southern kingdom with King Ahaz in 701 B.C. He looks at them and he sees them and he says there's a great darkness. That a people dwelt in a land of deep darkness. And when he says that, he's not joking. He's not speaking in hyperbole. There is a kind of death-like darkness that's falling over the people of Israel In fact, that's maybe why Isaiah uses an unusual word there in Isaiah 9-2 to describe this darkness. It's the Hebrew word salmit. It literally means the shadow of darkness. A kind of double darkness. If darkness was to have a shadow, that's how deep the darkness is. If darkness were to have a shadow, that's how deep the darkness is. It's the kind of death-like darkness that David poetically writes about in Psalm 23, a psalm that you're very familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, psalm it, a deep darkness, a darkness that is deep as death itself is what's looming over the people of Israel as Isaiah writes what we have come to know as some of the most beautiful lines in the Old Testament about the good news of great joy, which is for all people. Isaiah speaks at this wonderful prophetic moment into a situation, a circumstance of overwhelming dread. And yet it's here where the light shines. It's here when the light emerges That the great salvation comes. If you can think of it prophetically, it's like being trapped in a a cave. Some of you have been on cave adventures. We've got some beautiful caves in and around Middle Tennessee and in southern Kentucky that a number of us have visited. And we've we've put on our our little lights on the top of our heads and we've crawled through little crevices in those caves, and you've maybe been on the kind of tour as I have been on, where we're told in the midst of the tour, now everybody just turn off your lights. Turn off your lights. You turn off your lights and you're in the cave, and it's like a darkness like none other. It's a darkness that you can feel. You put your hand in front of your face so you can't even see it, and then somebody turns on their light. And your eye is just... Almost, almost blinded by the light, you're squinting to even see because your eyes have adjusted to such deep of a darkness. You, you didn't expect for the, the brightness of that, of that light. 
that's in a very real sense the kind of light that's breaking in that the prophet is talking about. And so what is this that they see? Well, he tells us what they see. They see a multiplied nation rejoicing with joy. In the midst of this great darkness, there's a light that's coming. And the light that's coming is a multiplied nation that's rejoicing with joy. No longer this little ragtag remnant of Judah, a suffering minority. It's on the verge of extinguishing in the days of Isaiah. That's not what he sees. He sees a, a large throng of people, a multitude. And, and notice it, their joy is like that of the harvest, like that of Thanksgiving. When you, when you gathered around your table with that turkey and that dressing and that sweet potato pie, it was that moment of, of joy, of, of harvest. And, and then he gives a picture that it's almost as if the kind of victory when you anticipated to die and you were on the, the verge of being completely snuffed out and all hope was lost. In that moment, the light came and at that moment, victory was won. The formidable foe dropped. The Goliath collapsed on the, the field. It was Joshua taking the, the land of Canaan. It was in a moment such as that, except... The, the language actually used here is, is the language of Midian. Do you see actually this rejoicing that's being described here in this text is for a reason. It's not just joy for nostalgic reasons or for superficial or worldly reasons. It's because this victory is real. He says it's a victory like in the days of Midian. Now maybe you're going back in the Rolodex of your memory right now. Midian, Midian, Midian. What is Midian about? What is this a reference to? Well, Midian, which just to keep you thinking biblically, Midian echoes and, and kind of rhymes with Gideon. It's a great way to remember it. He's, he's referencing that wonderful story of, of Gideon where, where Gideon with, with 300 measly warriors goes in and lays uh, low the Midianites and, and defeats them because God's hand was with him. When all darkness was surrounded and it seemed like there was no hope, God showed up and he fought for the people of Israel. And he used those, those 300 warriors who, who just blew some trumpets and smashed some jars. That's essentially all they did. And the Midians turned against themselves and slaughtered themselves. Clearly an act of divine intervention. A remarkable victory. Well, what he's describing here in Isaiah 9 is, is like a victory of Midian. A kind of darkness which no one expected you to overcome. A kind of victory that's given to you and no one expected it. I've been warned not to reference SEC football this morning. But something akin to what you saw yesterday. In the midst of deep darkness, from the jaws of victory, defeat came. Something along those lines is happening here. Only greater. Only much greater. As the text unfolds, you see it there in verse 5, the second reason for the rejoicing. Notice what he says. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You think, oh, that makes me want to shiver just a little bit. Well, it is a grisly image. Vivid indeed, but you should see it as an image of hope. It's an image that's actually describing the end of a battle. 
The battlefield strewn, as it often is with, with the remnants of warfare, tramping muddy boots and, and, and garments that have been stained with blood are now being pushed into a fire. And ash is what is being produced. You see the picture? The battle's over. The victory has been won. It's it's meant to say that in the way that Gideon won against the Midianites, God is going to fight for his people Israel. And he is going to bring to them a victory. But a victory not merely of a political or national sort. But a victory of spiritual proportion. With a victor who on the surface of things... Seems like anything but a Gideon or a Joshua or a mighty warrior. You want to ask the question who's this victor? Who is this mighty man of war who's going to come and is going to lay siege to the Assyrians who are threatening the people of Israel on every side? Who is this Attila the Hun that is going to come? And he's going to throw his weight around with, with battle strategic wisdom. And with might, leave no one standing. Who is this William Wallace? Who is going to come on the fields of Bannockburn and win freedom for Scotland in the moment where it seems as if all is going to be lost? Who is this? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now now certainly here is where the ancient Israelites would have had a few questions for the prophet Isaiah, for no one expected to hear the, the language of Child, a mere, a mere baby is going, going to come and this deliverer, this warrior to end all wars is, is a child. This, this light is going to break into the darkness and have the darkness scattering to the corners until it's utterly extinguished. This great warrior is going to be an infant. The deportation of the Galilean nations in the north had already taken place. They already had that in the back of the minds of the people in whom Isaiah was writing to. The Assyrians are encroaching. And Isaiah tells them, listen, don't worry. A boy child is coming. A boy child is coming. A son is going to be given. It would have struck Israel as strange, maybe even slightly offensive. Do you, do you not see the significance of what's going on here? You're telling me about a birth? Like that's, that's your solution? Like that's your answer? You're going to give us the prophecy of a birth in the midst of such darkness, in the midst of such imminent destruction? God's thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? His ways are not our ways. 
Through this little one, the one that he called in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel. Through this God with us, he shows us a far more excellent way. Notice what he shows us in just four statements. What he shows us in just four statements. He shows us God's infinite wisdom in an infant. Statement number one. He shows us God's infinite wisdom in an infant. Statement number two. He shows us God's strength with the sinew of a baby. He shows us God's strength with the sinew of a baby. Thirdly, he, he bestows God's eternal love through the gift of a child. He bestows God's eternal love through the gift of a child. And, and fourthly, he forges perfect peace through the presence of a little boy. Through the presence of a little boy. Now, now why do I give you those four statements? Well, those four statements are the four titles. The four names. They're the meaning behind the this one who has come, this child in whom they are to anticipate. Wisdom, strength, care, and peace is going to come from him. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is prince of peace. Now as scholars have looked at those titles given to us by Isaiah, they, they have seen something of, a, of an organizing principle in the first two of those titles, and in the last two of those titles. The, the first two of those titles speak to who this child is. This child is the wisdom of God. This child is the strength of God. And the last two of those titles tell us what this child has come to do. He has come to give us the everlasting love of the Father. And he has come to forge a kingdom of peace. That's what he's come to do. This is who he is, and this is what he has he has come to do. And, and notice that the Apostle Paul picks up on this thing. Especially in the wisdom and the strength of God. Do you remember the opening statements of 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Where the Corinthians were, were struggling. This crucified Savior that you say is the, is the very wisdom of God. They saw as foolishness. And, and the Jews who saw this crucified Savior and they saw it as weakness... But God said it was strength. That there's a paradox and there's an irony. That in the midst of this, people of Israel, in the midst of your battle, what you don't need is the wisdom of man. What you don't need is the strength of man. What you need is the wisdom of God and the strength of God. And here's what's remarkable. The wisdom of God's going to look foolish to you. And the strength of God is going to look weak to you. But the strength of God is stronger than the strength of man. And the wisdom of God is more wise than the wisdom of man. In fact, the foolishness of God is more wise than the wisdom of man. This child who doesn't look like much will be more than you can imagine. How do we know that? Well, because he is going to be everlasting father. Now, what an odd phrase. I thought this was a son. <laughs> there, there's a child going to be born. There's a son going to be given. And his name's going to be Father. Well, who would have thought that? What, what, what a curious name. Everlasting Father given to a son. What on earth does it mean? Or what in heaven does it mean? 
For this child is no mere son, is he? He's the son of God. He's the son of God who lives in perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The one who will be the mediator of the Father's love. Who from before the foundation of the world decreed and set his love upon his people. And is now executing redemption through his son. Of which will be applied through the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. This son has come to give the everlasting care and love of the father. He has come to forge such a close relationship that we're going to be known by his name. We're going to be known as Christians. The New Testament is going to say we have an inheritance. His inheritance. That everything that is his is ours. That all that he has won has been credited to our account. And that we now, as Paul makes clear in the beautiful letter of Romans, we are now adopted sons and daughters of the king through this one. Through this wisdom of God, through this strength of God, he forges a relationship with the Father and bridges what seemed unbridgeable. You see, you see we weren't just orphans, though we were that. We were enemies. We were enemy orphans. We were orphan enemies. We weren't just without a father. We were raging against the father. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when we have, when we have sought the things of the world in order to find divine satisfaction, when we have looked to the world's distractions rather than turn to the divine face of our God as presented in the scripture, when we have sought for the world's achievements as ways in which to make a name for ourselves rather than adopting the very name that we've been given in Christ and let his credentials and let his markers be our own. We have done that over and over and over again. And each time we've done so, we've raged against the Father. We're not just orphans, we're enemy orphans. How in the world is this wisdom of God and the strength of God who brings us into relationship with the Father, how is he going to do it? Only by being the Prince of Peace. Only by being the Prince of Peace. You see, there's a messianic thread that runs through the pages of Isaiah. It began, as I mentioned a second ago in chapter 7. This, this Emmanuel, that's who this child is. It expanded here in chapter 9 until, until we get later a soaring vision. A vision that's given in, in chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, where we begin to read of the chapters known as the suffering servant. You, you see, this Emmanuel, this God with us, this son who was given, this little child that is to be born, he is later described in Isaiah 53 with these words, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the chastisement. That sounds an awful lot like battle. Pierced for our transgressions sounds an awful lot like war. Through the attack that will be levied against him, he will bring to us his people peace. You see, this is this deep darkness, this, this real darkness, this death-like darkness, this shadow 
darkness, this valley of the shadow of death, is ultimately not the Assyrians. It's not even the, the Midianites. It's, it's ultimately the cross. It's the cross in the midst of the darkness of the moment where, where the Lord Jesus remarkably climbed the hill of Calvary and in the climbing of the hill of Calvary actually entered into the valley of the shadow of death. That in that moment, we are seeing Jesus enter warfare for us to enter into the cosmic spiritual battle which wages war against every one of our souls. A warfare that is not of this world but is of the kingdom of darkness. You see, our battle is not against geopolitical and national enemies. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and it's against principalities. Jesus entered into that battle. Jesus came to us in order that he might go to battle for us. In a battle that we can never win. In a battle that would encompass us and would swallow us up in its darkness, Jesus entered that darkness. And he entered that darkness on our behalf. Could, could it be? Could it be that Jesus was born in the dark? That night that the angels and the heavenly host broke in to announce the coming of the Savior as they were keeping watch over their flocks. When? By night. Could it have been that he was born in night as if to suggest not merely the time of the day, but to hint at his mission? That he had come into this world in the midst of darkness because he had come into this world to enter our darkness, to go to battle on our behalf. That this entering into the dark Savior would be the one who on the cross, in the midst of that darkness, would cry out, never with the term Father, which was the term he had always used, but would cry out with the term, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? This one who's always known the love of the Father lost the felt sense and the reality of the love of the Father there on the cross for you. This one who had always known peace in relationship with the Father entered into the sword and came under the suffering of relationship with the Father because he was a man of sorrows, he would be acquainted with grief. This Jesus, the one who was the Son of God, would experience what it is like to be orphaned on the cross and would come to know even what it is like to be staged in opposition to his Father as an enemy, being charged with our sin and wickedness. In order that we could cry, Abba, In order that Jesus could say, my peace I give to you. You see, the writer of Hebrews had it right. He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You know, when the angels broke through that dark night as the shepherds were in their fields, they said these words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Sounds something like the the news of the joy of Isaiah. A multitude and a time of harvest who's won victory over formidable foe. Good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. Do you see my friends? Unto you is born a Savior. Unto you is born. Not just to Mary. Not not just to, to those who are there. Unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. One who experienced the suffering on your behalf. One in whom the shadow of the cross is already cast when he lays in a manger. One in whom as he was laid against the wood of such manger, would before long be laid against a different kind of wood for the sake of your salvation. You see, he came into your darkness. And he came into your suffering. That you might know his joy and his hope. Maybe... The incarnation of Christ has ceased to amaze you. Maybe its expectation has been lost on you. Maybe, maybe there's something of an over-familiarity that you find yourself, even in the refrains of these truths rehearsed, even in this moment, you find yourself strangely dull. The Lord today is coming to you in grace and He is saying, Wake up, for the face of Christ is shining upon you. The darkness that seems so strong in you and seems even now maybe to overwhelm you will not be the last word over you. But Christ will be the last word if you are in Him. And He is the light of the world. Come to take away all the sins of His people. As we enter into this season of Advent, His words to you are, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, if you desire for this Advent and this Christmas season to not just be business as usual and simply nostalgic feelings surrounded by hot chocolate and Bing Crosby, But if you desire something more substantive, more real, it's not as paper thin as the wrapping around the gifts that you'll give, then you've got to look to the giver of that gift, God Himself. And by faith, behold the face of Christ, 
who promises to save you, to redeem you, and to draw you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. By God's grace, this Advent, all will be calm and all will be bright because Christ will be in it all. Father in heaven, bring your Son to us in powerful and renewing ways, deepening and transforming our life and relationship with you. Free us from our tendencies to look to the world for what only you can give and rescue us from the darkness that encompasses us around about and give to us the light that is Christ for his glory's sake and for the good of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.